1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And as you heard in Bob's news, the Prime Minister just made an announcement that he is hoping will stem the criticism over the government's slow and confused vaccine rollout and the supply cutbacks that we have been hit with. He just announced an agreement to manufacture Novavax vaccines here. Of course, it won't be ready to go until at least the summer. And he continued to insist that despite the cutbacks from both Pfizer and Moderna, the only two vaccines currently approved for use here in Canada, we will get all the vaccines we ordered by the end of March. And that, of course, does not answer the question as to why the government did not adequately order a supply for the end of the year, like other countries, including Great Britain and even the United States, did. So, and here at home, at the provincial level, the news about long-term care just keeps getting worse. As you also heard in Bob's news, we are on the point of exceeding the number of nursing home deaths in the first wave. So, will the Ford government sustain damage because of that. The numbers, 416 toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman-Hillard High Road, and Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel at National Public Relations. Hi, everyone. Hi, Hi Libby. Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi. Okay, let us begin with Bob. Hi, Bob. Uh, so How are you, Libby? I'm fine. How are you? Doing fine. So, uh, it will the prime minister's announcement of uh, you know just minutes ago. Is that going to de- deflect some of the criticism about the rollout of the vaccine? I
2: think it's helpful, and uh, you know, to have uh, domestic
1: production again. And I'm glad
2: uh they're doing it uh, it would be nice if they we could um, ramp this up faster and uh sometimes i think governments all of them have uh, haven't really been moving at the pace that they need to uh during a pandemic um and it doesn't seem to be have quite that national priority so i i hope we move quickly on that but um but uh so i i would say overall it's good news but look what the government needs is to be jabbing people in the arms and it needs to get uh, the vaccines from Moderna. It needs to get the vaccines from Pfizer. Prime Minister spoke spoken to both CEOs who have said it's coming. Uh, he needs to make sure that he doesn't have a problem with the EU. He's talked to the president of the EU. He's been assured of that. So verbally you know, we'll assured. At the end of the four, uh, first quarter, they're supposed to have four million vaccines in. If they do, I think things will be relatively on track. Uh, if they don't, then they've got a big problem.
1: Uh, John, again, um, you know, I have spoken to people who say basically the problem is that the government didn't order vaccines for the end of the year and what they got, uh, was very little, not enough for long-term care. And so here we are. Britain has vaccinated 90% of their population over 80, uh, in the community here they haven't even started doing that and they don't plan to start doing it until march or april these are older more vulnerable people who are healthy at the moment i mean uh, you know what what do you make of it does a vaccine uh, manufacturing announcement for the summer does will that deflect
3: Uh, I think it's, uh, as Bob says, I think it's good news. And, and, you know, we all want uh, the governments uh, at all levels to succeed when it comes to uh, to vaccine and putting an end to this pandemic. So we do will our our political leaders to succeed and do well. Um, And there will always be a time when when people will reflect back and and judge whether or not a a politician or a leader did well or didn't do well. I think the challenge with this prime minister has been and this could very well be the, the the chink in the armor uh so to speak with respect to to his success on on the pandemic you know is, is the vaccine rollout and i think there's been some challenges i think early on and uh just before the end of 2020 we heard a number of his cabinet ministers kind of auificating when the vaccine might be coming and how it's going to be rolled out and when most Canadians are going to be vaccinated and it was all over the map. And and I think the pressure that the opposition parties put on the Prime Minister allowed him to sort of, you know, get back to the pharmaceuticals, get deals cut, and get at least some vaccines in for twenty twenty, uh, which which he did, and which is obviously positive news. And then, and then we find out in the new year that that in fact Pfizer I had to put a delay on our specific shipments, not in other, other jurisdictions, but certainly in Canada, which affected us. So, you know, I think, I think the, the, the challenge is, is that we want, as Bob says, we want, you know, needles in arms as soon as possible. And no government leader can do it fast enough or quick enough or, Efficiently enough, there's going to be some hiccups that we've seen in some of the jurisdictions and, and whatnot. That's to be expected. But I do think though that, you know, it's good news that we're going to get some vaccines produced in our, in our country as we saw with PPEs. That's going to be helpful for us, uh, down the road. Uh, but that's the summer. We need to get, we need to get some jabs in arms, uh, right away. And, and, you know, I think a lot of the problems and certainly in Ontario, we're starting to see a lot of that as soon as they get the vaccines. Um, they'll put the plan in place to get long-term care facilities, at least the majority of them. Uh, all done. So so I think I think there's going to be some challenges with respect to that, but the good news from the perspective of having it done in Canada.
4: Karen? Yeah, you know, again, nobody wants to take away from the good news about our own domestic production capacity, but, but, but there's some realities here in that, you know, back in November, the Prime Minister said we didn't have any production capacity. Well, we did have production capacity, we just didn't have a deal with the manufacturer that wanted to produce here. And The fact that we're now ramping up and getting this deal inked, I think is a clear indication that we're not going to all be vaccinated by September. Because if we had actually any confidence in our supply chain and in our current contract, I don't, it's not evident to me that we would have to rush to do, to take this step to spend more money in making a production facility in Vancouver and potentially, potentially Vancouver and in Montreal to ramp up vaccine production. So, I think there's still a lot of questions like, are we going to get vaccinated by September? Can we rely on the vaccination strategy to help us get out of this? Um, If the answer to that is no, then we need to start pivoting to other things that we need to do. Because to your point, Libby, there's still vulnerable seniors who are not getting vaccinated. And we don't know when they're going to get vaccinated. My dad's 91. He hasn't been vaccinated because he's in assisted living, not in long-term care. Um, So there's so many questions that still are not answered by this announcement.
1: Well, yeah, and The Economist came out with uh, a projection and they said, Canada, Canada's not going to be vaccinated till the middle of 2022 unless they plan on, uh, you know, jabbing millions of people a day. The math doesn't right. work out. And, and there's, no, there's no way,
4: and from like just from a person who's observing what I'm being told, there is no way we're going to get vaccinated by September. There is no possible way. So let's just be honest about that and figure out a plan because, you know, as the other world economies reopen, because those countries did meet their vaccination targets, then we were at a competitive disadvantage. So if we cannot rely on the vaccine, we need to figure out another strategy because we need to do, we need to get this virus under control.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, now uh, we've, we've uh, found variants uh, those more contagious variants, uh, the ones from uh, Great Britain, and then there's we got a case of the one from South Africa. I I'm I'm not sure if there's a case of the one from Brazil, but uh, these things are here. Uh, in the next segment of the show, I'm going to be talking to the son of a, a resident at Roberta Place, which which had that and is having that horrible outbreak of that variant. I mean, we could be in for a third wave, Bob. I mean, you know, what happens then?
2: Well, I think let's stick to the plan. Uh, these guys are supposed to get 4 million vaccines in by the end of the first quarter. And if they get 4 million vaccines in, then we'll be moving quickly to uh, vaccinate people who are uh, over, over 80. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then I think the government needs to be held to account. But, you know, to say that that there is no plan and that we're not going to make it and isn't it all terrible and there are 19 new variants And you know, like, why don't we why don't we just all throw ourselves on the funeral pyre? Uh, Maybe instead, uh, we ought to be taking a look at this with uh, uh, a little bit more energy and enthusiasm. How can we once we get the vaccines here, how can we expand to make sure that we're vaccinating people in a much more aggressive fashion? I think governments both federal and provincial have been plotting on this and uh haven't uh, expanded their networks enough ontario uh optometrists are an example of that this week who said geez we could help out uh, but nobody's asked us yet so well, i think what we need to be doing is focusing our time energy and effort on trying to figure out how we expand the pie here how we do this quicker how we get some energy and enthusiasm into this? How we make it less government and bureaucratic, and maybe a little less hand wringing uh, would be helpful too, as well.
1: Okay, well, uh, that would make us happier, but it, it doesn't. There, there are lots of people who could help vaccinate if we had vaccine. But um, you know that I, I certainly understand why that story would get lost when the story is that we're we're getting cutbacks and we don't have any of the vaccines. uh, So it kind of, you know, almost is irrelevant how many people for
2: for three weeks, which they told us a month ago, which they told us three weeks ago, which they told us two weeks ago, which the prime minister talked about last Friday, and everyone is still wringing all their hands. They told us this was going to happen. It's happening. Now they have to produce both Moderna and Pfizer by the end of the first quarter. And if they don't hold them accountable.
1: Okay, uh, John, let's uh, move to the provincial government. Uh, so we all remember back in the spring, in the worst of it, the the premier standing up and, and talking about how uh, he was disgusted with what happened. He's going to put an iron ring around long-term care. That definitely did not happen. And even other provinces that were worse off than us, like Quebec, they're doing better because they did put correct measures in place. Is is the is the provincial government going to take heavy damage because of that?
5: Well,
3: I, I think no doubt. You know what we're seeing with long term care uh, facilities and, and uh, with with residents is some some of the egregious. Issues that have happened, uh, sort of, from the beginning of the of the pandemic until now, is, is you know no government is going to is going to get walk away from that in, in a positive way. I think what you can do is is simply say, look, we realize that there was a systemic problem with long term care facilities that that predated the uh, the pandemic and, and has been has been a system and an issue for for many years and over over multiple governments. Um, the the pandemic has shone this light on on the on the problems obviously and and the government has tried i think since the pandemic to do what it can by giving more money and by doing more than it can to build facilities and and put in some rules They, they called the military to sort of find out what was going on and so i think there's you know it's never enough and there's never enough money being spent on on trying to do what they can so yeah it's a weakness um that that i think this government continues to try to deal with and i know that i was just on a call just recently with the ontario chamber um, on their vaccine support group, which I'm on and, and the premier and, and, uh, Rick Hillier were on it. And, you know, they're saying that, you know, that the, the priority remains to, to try to vaccinate all of the long-term care facilities, residents and, and also those that, that are in there. I think the problem we're seeing is, is that some of these new variants are getting in by virtue of people who are not in the actual nursing homes, but are bringing them to the nursing home. So there's got to be some, some some issues there that have to be resolved. But all that to say, though, it's an issue that continues to be a problem that this government is going to continue to have to face and deal with, and and I'm sure they're going to keep spending some money on it and focus on it. Uh,
1: Yeah, Karen, I mean, do you agree with that? Quebec uh, put in a couple of measures, expensive measures, in that nice lull we had in the summer, which uh, is resulting in them having a better outcome now. They beefed up staffing at at great expense. They trained people, paid them to train, and they put an infection control person in every nursing home. It's paying off. We didn't do that. No, we didn't. And I, and I think it also
4: speaks to, and now. again, I'm not that knowledgeable about the Quebec system, but certainly in Ontario, because we have different, uh, different types of regulation for different types of homes. So we have retirement homes, we have assisted living homes, we have long-term care facilities. And each of those Homes are, are regulated slightly differently and different levels of accountability to the government and different levels of funding by the government. And so that complicates things in terms of what, um, how, much can, how much money can the government throw. They can throw more money at long-term care facilities because they're the primary funders of those facilities, whereas nursing homes and assisted living homes are, are privately funded. And so it becomes a little bit harder to regulate those. But the risk is the same. Okay. And so that, that is where we fell down, no question. And again, you know, not to sound like a broken drum on the rapid test, but I don't understand why the rapid tests aren't being deplo- deployed more widely in the, in our system. Because even if they're not perfect, they work better than not having them at all. And they could help identify quickly where these instances of COVID are being brought into these facilities because there is, we we know once they're brought in, it's so deadly, and so the, the whole idea is don't bring them in, and so and figure out how to how to manage that and protect the staff and the and the residents from having those variants brought in, and, and that's the piece that is again a bit mind boggling that you know there's lots we don't know about the virus, but there's some things we absolutely know, and we haven't acted on that knowledge.
1: You know, I I could swear I just heard another uh, promise about uh, deploying those rapid tests in in risky workplaces and long-term care. But, you know, there's often a lag between the promise to get it there and uh, them arriving. Uh, I'll take a call from Pat. Hi, Pat.
6: Good afternoon. Uh, I think we're missing something. This was announced as an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding it is sort of saying, well, we'll think about this. This is not a contract. So people have to understand that nothing has been signed that says we're going to produce this and when we're going to produce it. It's simply that we're going to look at the idea. And I mean, I think one of the problems we've got is we've never, the public has never been shown the contracts that have been signed by the federal government. And I suspect they say when and if available. So uh, you know, if we had some of that information, it would make it much easier for, for the public to understand what's going on.
1: Uh, okay, Pat, thanks for that. Uh, i 'm not sure uh, what that memorandum of understanding says, and if it 's uh, just pending crossing the eyes and uh, uh, i mean dotting the eyes. Uh, I read a really interesting story on some of the European contracts, and they are pretty loosey goosey uh, Delivery dates are not firm. They're kind of, we'll do our best. And even uh, the people who saw those contracts, the prices were redacted. There was uh, one uh, story that, that there was a provision. In the contracts that said that if a country disclosed the price, they could be cut off. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I will grant the, those pharmaceuticals, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, who already have approved vaccines, they have us over a barrel. John, what do you think of that?
3: Well, that's right. And I think that and the issue is, and, and some of the, some of the PR related to some of these pharmaceutical companies are a bit challenging in, in regard to like what we saw with the tax credit, you know, uh, that, that Pfizer was asking at, at the same time that they were holding production, uh, here in Canada. So, you know, it, it's, it's always a challenge. But look, I think at the end of the day, we all, we have to make sure that, that that we get as many as much of, of, of these doses as we can. I know that there are multiple companies working on it. Johnson and Johnson's is coming in and I think it's an easier uh, vaccine than, than or not, not as complicated I guess as Pfizer's and not nearly as complicated as as modernas, which I think is positive. and I think all that is good news for us
1: Bob, uh, I mean to me partly what this shows is that really Canada does not have very, very much clout. On the world
2: scene? uh, Look, we're a country of 35 million people. We are in a highly competitive situation with other countries right now. We have no domestic production, and we have a situation that is hugely fast moving. Uh, And uh, I don't care who's in office, at what level, it is a challenging situation for a country our size uh, and scope. Uh, I think we're doing most of the right things. Do I think some of them should have been done earlier or faster? Yeah, probably in retrospect we should have. Um, but, uh, but I think generally we're doing the things we're supposed to. If we, if they produce, if Moderna and Pfizer produce, I think there'll be a general sigh of relief and that kind of rights the ship and puts us back, uh, on track. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, generally we'll be moving in the right direction. I think on uh, if I could just comment on long term care I I agree with Karen 100% on the rapid testing. I've never understood why we're not more aggressive or active uh on on rapid testing. It 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 seems to make a lot of sense to me. And and on long term care too as well. We've this problem's been around for 15 years. It's not just this government, it's previous governments too as well. We need a sweeping look at long term care. Uh, and we need to uh, obviously clean up a lot of the regulations. It hasn't been well run, and it's, uh, and it's something that we've got to make a priority because uh, clearly it's been an area that's been neglected far, far too long.
1: Okay, yeah, we're basically out of time, so I will also give 20 seconds each to John and Karen. What would you like to leave us with, John?
3: Well, I just, I, you know, just looking at, at what's happening with uh, with the vaccines, and and now that we're January is uh, is you know behind us now, and we're into February, and there's, there's some more doses coming in in the middle of February, and then by the end of February. So I'm just hoping that those uh, there's no more glitches or delays, and that we can get uh, we can get uh, these vaccines in people's arms as quickly as possible.
1: Karen,
4: yeah, I think that to, to echo John's point, um, that the governments really need to make sure that. You know, unfortunately, there's no more room for error uh, in how these vaccines get delivered. They have to it has to just be laser focused, tightly run, no mistakes because, um, you know, all the mulligans have been used up.
1: OK, uh, thank you so much to our strategy panel. Karen Stints, John Capobianco and Bob Richardson. Nice talking to you. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. <laughs> OK. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, Jeremy Taggart, you know him as a musician. His mother is a resident at Roberta Place, and he is going to share his story with us when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio
1: welcome back. We have all been following the terrible news out of Roberta Place Nursing Home in Barrie, where the newer, more contagious variant of COVID-19 has spread like wildfire, infecting all but one resident and killing more than 60 people. Musician Jeremy Taggart's mother, Beryl, is a resident, and he recently got the terrible news that she is among those infected. And amazingly, the staff there don't seem to even be sure whether she has been vaccinated. Jeremy Taggart joins me now. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for being with us.
7: Hi, Libby. Thanks for having me.
1: How is your mother?
7: Uh, She's actually doing really well. Um, She had one incident, um, She uh, she's probably had COVID now for about a week and a half, almost two weeks, and uh, she had a, a slight downturn last, uh, last early last week where she lost appetite and needed a little bit of oxygen, so she did uh, go to the hospital for a night and then was brought back um, stable, and she's, there's four nurses. There at Roberta Place from the hospital on staff monitoring uh, every couple of hours, and uh, she's been doing well ever since. But I do feel that uh, um, she's she's one of the lucky ones, and uh, nobody should have had to face uh, the situation of having to go through this this virus.
1: You know. Yeah, it's 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 horrible. So uh, tell me. What happened? Uh, the outbreak, I believe, dates to January the 8th. Uh, yeah. When did you find out about it? And when did you find out about your mom?
7: Well, I I, I did hear about the outbreak around on the 8th. Um, I, that was very concerning to me. They had been doing very well all last year in lockdown, uh, being very strict with visitors. The The best that I could do was Uh, wave from her because she's on the third balcony uh, from the parking lot for visits and uh, she suffers from severe dementia. So conversations are difficult from that far away. But um, I had respected how they had been keeping uh, the lockdown in place throughout the year. And when I heard the outbreak happened, I I just, you know, I, I was struck with fear based on the last failures that we've seen from Halifax at Northwood to Montreal to Bob Cage. And so I, I just kind of got really afraid. And I think it was probably the day two or three when um, I didn't see anybody coming in. I heard the military in the spring had been coming in. And Burt Base Borden's only 15 minutes away. There was nothing happened, there was no extra hands on deck. So I assumed as a family member that everything was okay. And uh, that obviously wasn't the case. And as soon as we were getting uh, updates in email form because their phone lines had been down, uh, it was just the numbers were just getting doubling and tripling. And um, I found out my mom had it. And I think the Red Cross didn't come in until the 16th
1: of January. When did your mom contract it?
7: Uh, Probably around... Um, it's real difficult for me to pick days. So about a week and a half from where we are right now.
1: A week and Um, a half back. another question, Jeremy, uh, how is what kind of a room is she in? How many other people?
7: She was in a, a room with one other person. Um, that's the other thing that was very concerning when I heard that their owner, uh, David Jarlett actually admitted that they were not cohort, cohorting properly, that they were um, inundated and overwhelmed and people were actually not properly uh, isolated. And that's, that's my biggest problem with this whole thing is just the fact that there was no help from day one to help quarantine this virus properly. There was a lot of promises happening from Fullerton and Ford in terms of taking care of this and having people in place, but this was this, this not the case. And it was a, a real failure and uh it's going to keep on happening until something is is uh, going to be done about it.
1: Well, um as as I'm sure you're aware, um Roberta Place is is the subject of of a big lawsuit that uh they hope will be certified for class action, but that's uh you know that doesn't re- result in anything anytime soon, obviously.
7: No, and honestly um with that, I mean it, 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 at the end of the day our, the problem is LTCs, not in in one in particular, and it's, the biggest problem is the fact there's no action from above on, on, on this. There should be a, a task force, an emergency task force. There's more than enough money to have trained doctors and staff at the ready for any time one of these outbreaks happens. There's $6.5 billion just sitting there that uh, otherwise goes into balance the budget next month. I mean, this is all right there in front of us on paper. The failure is the fact that there was no action and, uh, now 63 lives have been lost and there's still more people that have it and it's just gone through the whole building. Uh, it was a complete failure in my opinion. I don't blame the people in there, in there and cl- class action suits are basically taking the owner and the place that place in its, in its path. And I just feel that, um, even though that might, uh, be a, a small, There just needs to be serious policy changes that have to happen. And we know that takes a long time.
1: Well, here's a couple of things that that what I've heard from the uh, head of the association that represents for-profit long-term care is that so she was saying that when there is a crisis and a home reaches out uh, because the way they're handling them now is with these management agreements with hospitals that when that happens, it takes too long. It's a bureaucratic process. It's not like what you're describing a SWAT team and and. People going in right away. Uh, she's saying it takes too long. And, uh, the government has been questioned repeatedly. Why not bring in the military? And there isn't much of an answer to that. They say, well, it's not necessary because we have hospitals, you know, uh, the, the, Sensible explanation is that the government uh, doesn't want the embarrassment of that. What, what's yeah. your view of that? Well, the biggest
7: that's a, that's a sad answer because the truth is, on an emergency crisis, there aren't there aren't people in hospitals, there aren't people in the buildings that are equipped to deal with this. This is something that needs to be done from the outside, and and and, and not necessarily about. Uh, needing ventilators. It's about uh, the proper containment of the virus. So if that means taking the the first and foremost, isolating everybody and rapidly testing everybody to find out who has it and who does it, and taking those away from that building as opposed to leaving them in that building and allowing that staff to have to handle it, which is not in their realm. This is something that needs to be uh, people with hazmat suits coming in to help to to take them to other places, to quarantine them properly, to contain the virus. This is not something that hospitals and long-term care facilities have in place. This is something that, uh, this is the reason why money was put aside for COVID relief disaster areas. Uh,
1: The other thing in your story that I found, you know, just beyond the pale, frankly, uh, you're saying that the staff are not sure if your mother has been vaccinated. Is that right?
7: Yeah. Um, My brother spoke to the doctor initially. I'm not sure which doctor it was, but they said that they were so overwhelmed when they were doing the vaccinations. I did hear a number in the town hall of 91 or 93 people, residents that did get vaccinated. And yeah, it was uh, first. My first question was, "Did, did my mom get vaccinated? And they were unsure of that. But they, you know, whether that was good or bad if she got COVID after getting that vaccination. So apparently it's okay. And at worst, it will help, if anything, to have that vaccine before or after someone tests uh, positive on from COVID. So that was a bit of a relief. But the fact that they didn't have the actual numbers because they were trying to get shots in arms as fast as possible and weren't, uh, doing the administration side quickly. And That's the, the other thing. Administration is a whole other thing that they would need help because they're overwhelmed doing other things to pick up phones and keep families in touch. They need they need uh, people to with tablets and FaceTimes and all of these things in place on day one to to, to keep people informed. And again, this this would all be in, in place with this Properly aligned task force that the money is there to pay for.
1: Well, the, not being aware of whether someone is vaccinating—that's a shocking. That's that's incompetent. I'm I'm sorry, and and presumably, then you don't know if she uh, got one or two doses.
7: Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Well, she definitely didn't get two, but there were 91 first doses or 93 first doses administered. Uh, obviously, that's shameful to not have that information. But to me, the worst thing is actually putting positive cases with negative cases in the same room. I mean, that to me is is beyond uh, a failure and should not have happened.
1: And, and happened in the first wave. And we all yeah. knew that it happened in the first wave and it was supposed to not happen again. Yeah. Jeremy, I mean, that's, if
7: that's not gross negligence, I don't know what is.
1: Jeremy, I, I really appreciate you sharing your story. I, I wish you and your mother all the very best. Uh, what would you like to leave us with on this?
7: Uh, I just think everybody has to kind of keep an eye on their local MPs and just fight uh, to, to have the the right people in office that are going to take care of 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 the elderly pop- population. I mean, this, if this was a uh, hundred kids, it would not have rolled out the same way, and that's the problem.
1: Yeah. Jeremy Taggart, again, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story, and we wish you all the best, and thanks for being with us.
7: Thank you, Libby. Have a great day.
1: You too. Okay, uh, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about another big problem, auto insurance, when we return. You're listening
0: to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. What's been happening to your auto insurance premiums lately? The NDP thinks they should go down by a full 50% as a matter of fact because collisions are down by more than half since last March at least here in Toronto according to numbers from the Toronto Police Service. The reality is that premiums, a lot of them anyway, are continuing to rise at a time when there's less traffic on the roads due to pandemic restrictions. The NDP says insurance have banked an extra 2.7 billion dollars during the pandemic and that they are artificially inflating the savings they have claimed to give back in rebates by including the number of people who have reduced their coverage to comprehensive or fire and theft. And drivers can always reduce their coverage to reflect less driving or not driving at all. And apparently some of them have even reported increases when they try to reactivate their coverage when they decide to get back on the road. So let me give the numbers out uh, let us know what's happening with your car insurance. 416 360 toll-free 866 740 740 And now I'm joined by Tom Rakasevich, who is the former uh, Ontario NDP auto insurance critic and is now the transit critic. And, uh, Uh, He's the MPP for Humber River Black Creek. We have Chris Bond, who's a managing partner at Bond Law, and consumer advocate Ellen Roseman. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Libby. Uh, I'm going to begin with Tom. Uh, I remember when uh, both Doug Ford and the former finance minister got in on this. They got very angry. They uh, named and shamed some insurance companies, and we saw... I think, one round of rebates and, and not much after that.
8: Absolutely. And thanks again for covering this important issue. Um, you know, it, it, it's easy to look good in a press conference pretending to be angry. The reality is that the Ford government has the opportunity and continues to have the opportunity to mandate in real reductions as deserved by Ontario drivers. All they did was allow for the possibility of rebates but the reality is for the 10th straight time, auto insurance rates across the board have gone up for drivers during a pandemic and during a time when accidents in Toronto are less than 50%. Um, they're down by over 50%. And it's similar across the entire province. And so once again, the Ontario the NDP are calling for a reduction of 50% in premiums across the board. Um, for all drivers, it's it's time to stop gouging Ontario drivers.
1: And when you talk about the the insurance companies banking an extra two point seven billion, that's money that they didn't pay out in claims. I'm assuming.
8: Yeah, I mean, with, with the reduction in accidents, they've they've it, it's been estimated that that's about it's been reported on actually that that's been their savings during the course of a pandemic. So insurers have saved over two point seven billion dollars in Ontario, and they're raising the rates. And the government of Ontario, the Ford government, is allowing this. They are allowing the regulator to approve rate increases, and they are not forcing insurers to do the right thing, respect Ontario drivers, and give Ontario drivers the rebates they deserve. Because the proof is out there. Accidents are down by over 50%, and we're paying more. It makes no sense.
1: Ellen Roseman, uh, what's your take on this? I mean, if you ask insurers, they say that uh, payout for the accidents aren't the only things that cost them money.
5: Yes, uh, they talk about the fact that under the Kathleen Wynne Liberal government, they were... Uh, under price caps or price reductions, the, the promise was that we'd uh, have an average 15% reduction in automobile insurance rates didn't happen, didn't but happen. They, they couldn't raise them as much as they wanted to. So now they're taking advantage of this, I guess, to raise the rates. They say they're not making a profit, but as Tom knows, we don't know if they're making a profit or not. We've not given enough figures on, you know, where they make their money and how much insurance, uh, auto insurance contributes to their overall profits. Um, These rebates were kind of a joke. I got one for thirty dollars, a little check in the mail, and my car is like fourteen hundred dollars a year to insure. So that's about three percent of my annual bills. And then just recently, I found out I'm on a what they call telematics. You know where you have an app on your phone, and it lets them see how you're driving, which I like because I don't want to speed or get a speeding ticket or anything like that. So. I stopped driving for uh, two months in the fall because I had hip replacement surgery and I wasn't allowed to drive. And then I noticed they sent me a credit for $51 because I was automatically kicked off the program. And I said, no, I don't want to lose the program because it qualifies me for up to 30% annual discounts on my car insurance. Now they're uh, charging me $51 to get back on the program. And this is really annoying. You know, they're kind of nibbling at you everywhere to try and get money out of you. And this is a pandemic. And I'm wondering how many people might have that same telematics but aren't driving because they're working at home and don't know. I certainly didn't know that there was a condition that if you stop driving and using the app for 65 days, you're automatically disconnected, and you have to pay to get back on.
1: Hmm. Good point. I know that uh, before my renewal came out, up, uh, I got an email from uh, the broker saying, "Hey, everybody's driving less. Are you driving less? You'll get you'll get a quote discount." Is like, no, I'm not. I'm not driving less because I'm going to work but that's not a discount. If you change your coverage, there are people who've parked their cars in the driveway and uh, they're paying less too, but they're also not insured. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris, uh, you're a lawyer. You represent people uh, who have claims. What, what are you finding?
9: Yeah, I find the same thing, that uh, the rates continue to increase. And I take it from the perspective, yes, we want to see... Uh, insurance rates go down for everyone. That's obviously helpful to everyone in the province, but I also look at it from the uh, view of the injured victim, those who are innocently injured in car crashes, uh, or uh, otherwise injured. And the benefits have been cut as well. There have been successive cuts to the benefits being paid. Uh, At the same time, rates are going up. So I'm seeing very seriously injured people in car collisions who aren't getting the medical and rehabilitation treatment they need. And I'll echo the comments that what we need is financial transparency from these companies. We need to know what money are they earning in Ontario on auto insurance, and then we can have a, a proper informed discussion as to what the appropriate rates should be. But without that information... It's hard to discuss in a vacuum what the appropriate rates should be. We we rely on the insurance companies to uh, be upfront with what they're earning, and within they're not they're simply not providing us the information. And so I'm part of a, a group of plaintiff lawyers, lawyers who represent those who've been injured, the Ontario Trialers Association, and we've been uh, asking the Ontario government for years to force auto insurers in Ontario to disclose what they're making uh, in Ontario on auto insurance. And they refuse to force insurance companies, but the, the government refuses to force insurance companies to disclose that information. As an example, uh, just this past week, Intact is reporting profits from uh, third quarter in 2020 to be $370 million. And uh, their 2019 income as comparison was $273 million. So it's expected that Intact's uh net profit for 2020 is going to be somewhere around 500 million dollars or more and consider that in 2019 it was 273 million dollars so they're obviously earning some type of windfall and the only difference uh it, well one of the main differences is that people are driving less and intact in 2019 had a 14.6% share of the auto insurance market so they're one of the larger players and and yes we need some Transparency as to where these numbers are coming from, so we can see whether or not rates are appropriate. As well, we have got to stop cutting benefits uh, to those who are injured.
8: Can, uh, can I make a comment on that? So uh, yes,
1: Tom, go go ahead. I also wanted to ask. I mean, the insurance industry is is governed by you know an an arm's length body.
8: Yeah, the, the regulator has the power to make all these changes. But in 2018, I introduced a private members' bill called the Lower Automobile Insurance Rates Act, and one of the things this bill was aimed at doing was giving the transparency, opening up the books in many ways to let Ontarians and the government and the regulator have more information to see what's going on. This isn't like, um, you know, you don't ever have to go to a particular fast food restaurant and buy food there. But if you want to drive a a car or a vehicle in Ontario, and it's it's a need for, for many, you're forced to have to do business with insurance companies. So why isn't there enhanced transparency? And further to what the gentleman said, um, you know, they're constantly crying poor. And when you look, they're always posting profits. So under the former Liberal government, they worked out a deal with the Liberals saying, OK, sure, um, we're going to reduce rates uh, if you if you help us slash accident benefits for people that are injured.
1: Exactly. And so yeah.
8: The Liberals decided to, yeah, let's go and do this. And, it, and what happened? People who are injured have gotten less and everybody's rates continue to go up. And so this government voted against my bill to bring transparency And both the past and former, and continue, and the conservative government continue to just work hand in hand with the auto insurance industry, and 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 continuously, Ontario drivers continue to be gouged. We deserve better.
1: Well, and it's it's not even on your car insurance because I remember when that happened, I got a call from the broker, and the broker said they've cut back on the benefits, and you need to purchase an umbrella policy or something else that's not necessarily in that auto insurance thing that's also going up uh, or else you know he said if anything happens uh, you need more coverage
5: Yeah, so I did really talk about how fraud is a big deal in Ontario but they've been saying this for years and years we don't get any sense of how much they're losing to fraud are they trying to reduce it where the reductions are coming they should be reducing it at this point but meanwhile they treat accident victims as if they're fraudulent Mm-hmm. Even to the extent of following them around to see what they're doing, to see if they're injured, as they said they were injured, and uh, so the victims are being blamed rather than whoever is committing these frauds. And we don't know if that's just something that they've made up because we don't have enough evidence about it.
9: Okay. I'll, I'll all right. echo that comment that this co- this claim of fraud is without any basis of any evidence at all. Where they they float these numbers, and there's been no, and they've used the same numbers for over, I think, five or ten years. That's yep. what they say fraud is in the system. And it's just, there's no evidence to back that up. And I think one of the uh, key areas where they're losing, maybe losing money is in property damage, cars are more complex, they're more difficult to fix. And so they're losing money on the property damage claims, but they're earning excessive profits, in my view, on bodily injury and accident benefits. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so what happens is uh, collision and, and getting property damage on your vehicle is optional but everyone has to buy the base level of accident benefits and has to buy liability insurance. And so since those are mandatory, they're increasing those rates, but they're not addressing the problem that they're losing money on the property damage
1: claims. Okay. Can can I give you my favorite story about um, auto insurance claims? My husband (laughs) drives a a fancy car. Um, He had an episode where the bike rack fell off the car and left uh, a very small mark. He assumed he had to just pay for that himself. And the uh, guy, the repair shop that specialized in this type of fancy car, said, "Okay, buddy, you know, for you, eighteen hundred bucks, which yeah. was, um, you know, for a small damage." Then uh, he did tell the broker about it. The broker said, "Hey, you're covered for this, and it doesn't count as anything. Go through the insurance." suddenly the bill from the same repair shop was eight thousand dollars i kid you not <laughs>
9: <laughs> yeah, i think that, that that's where the, the problem lies is that, that if there's any fraud in the system it, it's more related to the property damage claims and and not those who are injured i mean i can tell you uh, i represent hundreds of victims of car crashes and they're not looking to game the system. What they're looking to do is to get necessary medical treatment without having a hassle of proving that they need it. If their treating doctor recommends it, like any other type of insurance, like you have extended healthcare benefits, if your treating doctor recommends physiotherapy, it's almost 99 times out of 100, your extended healthcare benefits insurer pays the cost up to the limits of the policy. Not so with auto insurance. They typically deny treatment recommended by treating health professionals and make you prove it, and that's a long, expensive process.
1: Okay, I'm. Um, I'm going to uh, take a call from uh, Michael in Mississauga. Hi, Michael.
3: Uh good afternoon, Lizzie. Um, I've heard that um, with that um, calamated um, system, I whatever you call it, that if you have to accelerate or decelerate to avoid an accident, that is also counted against you, not just speeding.
1: Um. Okay, and do you have a question about that? Um, I just wanted to confirm because I only listen to these commercials by the
3: auto insurance. Don't, don't, don't sudden brake, don't sudden accelerate. Uh,
1: that, that, that will affect your um, safe driver rating. Okay, Michael, thanks for that. Uh, Ellen? I
5: would say that if you have had an, an incident where you are uh, almost in an accident and you've had to suddenly accelerate or decelerate, you can call your insurance company and tell them and say, you know, this is a one-time thing. I'm not going to do it all the time. I'm not going to always say this is the case, but this is the first time I've ever reported this, and I don't think that should count in my record, and they have the ability to take it off.
1: Okay, good luck with that, is, is what <laughs> I say. Yeah. Um, um, uh, we are. Uh, we have a couple more minutes left. Uh, so, Tom, I mean, where is this going to go? If you couldn't get this to happen with a Liberal government, what are the chances with a Conservative government?
8: Look, you've, you've got 40 Ontario MPP, NDP, NDP MPPs that, that are fighting for Ontario drivers. We're going to continue to hold the government accountable. We've got an incredible new critic, Kevin Yard, out in Brampton, and we're going to continue to be one voice on getting respect for drivers. We're going to continue to put the pressure um, we, we put a lot of pressure, and you saw the government you know, having to respond to Ontario drivers and our pressure as well with their press conferences and their, their supposed anger. And, and so far, they've disappointed. They haven't used their power to rein in these insurance companies, but we're going to continue to make an issue. And I personally want to thank you because it's you, it's your listeners, and it's everybody out there that are putting pressure on the government to do the right thing. Our Ontario drivers deserve respect. We're being gouged, and we're certainly being gouged. During a pandemic, when insurers have made over $2.7 billion in profits, accidents are down by 50%, and insurance rates are going up across the board. It's, it's, it shouldn't be happening. We deserve better.
1: Ellen, uh, the one thing I did want to quickly get into, so all those people who uh, have reduced their coverage because they're driving less or not yeah. driving at all, uh, are they going to get increases when they start up again? A good question. One of the things
5: is that if you take your coverage right off a car that's not being used, you then can get a higher rate. So the advice is to keep some of the coverage, you know, just keep a minimal amount of coverage, reduce your cost that way. But if you completely take off the car, you have a gap and then you come back. That is usually a signal to the insurance company that they don't have the complete history so they will raise the rate because they don't know what the risk is.
1: Okay, that's uh, that's interesting. Is is there anything else that consumers, drivers should be particularly aware of, Ellen? Well, there's
5: always a, a, a good reason for older drivers in particular to shop around because you do have a good history. Uh, you're not going to get the kind of discrimination that younger drivers get. So go to one of the websites that allows you to compare rates. There's a whole bunch of them. The one I, I write for is lowestrates.ca, but there's others as well. And just see, you know, what you can get in terms of better rates elsewhere. And also look at your coverage and try and talk to the companies about whether you can raise your deductibles or lower certain kinds of coverage to be able to get a better rate.
1: And uh, Chris, uh, what's your advice?
9: My advice, again, is as well to uh, definitely shop around and and make sure if you are involved in a collision that you are uh, seeing your doctor regularly. Getting treatment regularly and making sure you explain all of your injuries and impairments from the collision. Don't wait because a lot of times insurance companies see that people are trying to get better, but if they, if there's a gap in the, in the time that they visit their doctors or, or physios, for example, they use that against the injured victim instead of uh, su- supporting them. So definitely uh, shop around for lowest rates, but as well, we all look at the other side of it and make sure that victims who need care are getting the care they, that they, that they need to get better.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Chris Bond, Ellen Roseman, and Tom Rakasevich. Thanks for having you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Okay, and uh, that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.